Chapter 5, Part 2 of Kangaroo by D. H. Lawrence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Chapter 5, Cooey, Part 2 of 3. The house was very pretty and beautifully built but it showed all signs of the eleven children. On the veranda at the side, on either side of the visitor's door, was a bed, one a huge family iron bedstead with an indescribably rusty, saggy wire mattress, the other a single iron bedstead with the wire mattress all burst and so mended with a criss-cross of ropes. These beds were screened from the sea-wind by sacks, old pieces of awful carpeting, and pieces of linoleum tacked to the side of the veranda. The same happened on the third side of the house, two more rope-mended iron bedsteads, and a nailed-up lot of unspeakable rags to screen from the wind. The house had three little bedrooms, one opening from each of the side verandas, and one from the big central room. Each contained two saggy single beds. That was five people. Remained seven with the father and mother. Three children must have gone into the huge bed by the side of the entrance door, and the other four must have been sprinkled over the other three outside rope-mended beds. The bungalow contained only the big room with five doors, one on each side the fireplace, opening into the inner bedroom and the kitchen respectively and on each of the other three sides a door opening onto the veranda. From the kitchen opened a little pantry and a zinc-floored cubbyhole fitted with the inevitable Australian douche and a little sinkhole to carry off the water. This was the bathroom. There it was, all compact and nice, two outer bedrooms on the wings, and for the central block the big room in front, the bedroom and kitchen at the back. The kitchen door opened onto the bit of grass at the back near the shed. It was a well-built little place, amazing in a world of wood and tin shacks, but Somers would not have liked to live in it with a thirteen-people family. There were eleven white breakfast cups, of which nine had smashed handles, and broad tin substitutes quite cannily put on. There were two saucers only, and all the rest to match seven large brown teapots, of which five had broken spouts, not one whole dish or basin of any sort except a sauce-boat, and rats. To rest in was a clean and ratless spot compared with Cooey, for the house was called Cooey to fetch the rats in, Jack said. The women flew at the house with hot water and soda, Jack and Summers spent the morning removing bedsteads into the shed, tearing down the horrid rag-and-dirt screens, pulling out the nails with which these screens had been held in place, and pulling out the hundreds of nails which had nailed down the dirt-gray thin carpet as if forever to the floor of the big room. Then they banged and battered this thin old patternless carpet, and washed it with soda and water, and then they banged and battered the two sofas that were like sandbags so full of sand and dust 
and they took down all the ugly dirt-filmed pictures of the dainty gibson sort and the my refuge is in god text i should think so said jack away from the muck they'd made down here like demons the four of them flew at this coy house and afternoon saw jack and summers polishing floors with a stuff called glow-wax and harriet and victoria putting clean papers on all the shelves and arranging the battered remnant of well-washed white crockery the crockery is the worst item here said victoria you pay three and six and four shillings for one of these cups and saucers and four and six for a common brown quart jug and twelve guineas for a white dinner service harriet looked at the horrid breakable stuff aghast i feel like buying a tin mug at once she said but victoria did not bother she took it all as it came the people with the eleven children had paid three and a half guineas a week for seven months for the house at three o'clock victoria's brother a shy youth of seventeen arrived in a buggy and drove jack and victoria away the four miles to the home of the latter somers and harriet had tea alone but i love and adore the place said harriet victoria says we can have it for thirty shillings a week and if they'd let you off even half of the month for torreston we should be saving the colcotts arrived home in the early dark oh but doesn't the house smell different cried victoria beeswack and terps said jack not a bad smell again the evening passed quietly jack had not been his own boisterous self at all he was silent and you couldn't get at him victoria looked at him curiously wondering and tried to draw him out he laughed and was pleasant enough, but relapsed into silence as if he were sad or gloomy. In the morning sunlight, Harriet and Somers were out first. After Somers had made a fire, having a frightened dip in the sandy foam, they kept far back from the great rollers, which, as the two sat on the dribbling backwash, reared up so huge and white and fanged in the front attack that Harriet always rose and ran and it was long before she got really wet and then when they did venture to sit in a foot of water up came a sudden flush and flung them helpless rolling a dozen yards in and banged them against the pebbles it was distinctly surprising summers had never known that he weighed so little that he was such a scrap of unimportance and he still dared not quite imagine the whole of the blind invisible force of that water it was so different being in it, even on the edge of it, from looking at it from the outside. As they came trembling and panting up to the bank, to the grass plot, dripping and smelling so strong and sticky of the Pacific, they saw Jack standing, smoking and watching. "'Are you going to try it?' said Somers. He shook his head and lit a cigarette. "'No, it's past my bathing season,' he said. They ran to the little tub-house and washed the sand and salt and sea-stickiness off with fresh water. Summers wondered whether Jack was going to say anything to him or not. He was not sure. Perhaps Jack himself was not sure. And Somers had that shrinking feeling one has from going to see the doctor. In a quiet sort of way, the two men kept clear of one another. 
They loitered about in the sun and round the house during the morning, mending the broken deck chairs and doing little jobs. Victoria and Harriet were cooking roast pork and applesauce and baking little cakes. It had already been arranged that the Summers would come and live in Cooey, and Victoria was quite happy and determined to leave a supply of nice eatables behind her. In the afternoon they all went strolling down the sands, Somers and Victoria, Jack and Harriet. They picked up big, iridescent abalone shells, such as people had on their mantelpiece at home, and bits of purplish coral stuff and they walked across two fields to have a look at an aeroplane which had come down with a broken propeller. Jack, of course, had to talk about it to the people there, while Summers hung back and tried to make himself invisible, as he always did when there were strange onlookers. Then the four returned home. Jack and Victoria were leaving by the seven train next morning. Summers and Harriet were staying on a few days before they returned to Sydney to pack up. Harriet was longing to have the house to themselves. So was Summers. He was also hoping that Jack wouldn't talk to him, wouldn't want anything of him, and at the same time he was waiting for some sort of approach. The sea's edge was smoking with the fume of the waves, like a mist, and the high shore ahead, with the few painted red-roof bungalows, was all dim like a Japanese print. Tier after tier of white frost foam piled breaking towards the shore in a haste. The tide was nearly high. Summers could hardly see beyond the white wall-tops of the breaking waves. Only on the clear horizon, far away, a steamer was like a small black scratch and a fantastic thread of smoke. He lingered behind the rest. They were nearly home. They were at the wide sandy place where the creek left off. Its still brackish waters just sank into the sands without ever running to meet the waves. And beyond the sands was a sort of marsh, bushes and tall, stark dead gum trees and a few thin tufted trees. Half wild ponies walked heavily from the bush to the sands and across to the slope where the low cliff rose again. In the depth of the marsh-like level was the low chimney of the mine and the tips of roofs, and beyond a long range of wire-like trees holding up tufts of foliage in handfuls in front of the pale blue diminishing range of the hills in the distance. It was a weird scene, full of definite detail, fascinating detail, yet all in the funeral gray monotony of the bush. Summers turned to the piled-up, white-fronted sea again. On the tip of a rock above him sat a little bird with hunched-up shoulders and a long beak, an absurd silhouette. He went towards it, talking to it. It seemed to listen to him, really to listen. That is another of the charms of Australia. The birds are not really afraid, and one can really communicate with them. In West Australia, Summers could sit in the bush and talk to the flocks of big, handsome, black-and-white birds that they call magpies, but which are a sort of butcher bird, apparently. And they would gurgle little answers in their throats and cock their heads on one side. Handsome birds they were, some with mottled gray breasts like fish, 
and the boldest would even come and take pieces of bread from his hands. Yet they were quite wild, only they seemed to have a strange power of understanding the human psyche. Now this little kingfisher by the sea. It sat and looked at Somers and cocked its head and listened. It liked to be talked to. When he came quite near, it's bed with a straight low flight of kingfishers to another boulder and waited for him. It was beautiful, too, with a sheeny sea-green back and a pale breast touched with burnt yellow. A beautiful dandy little fellow, and there he waited for Summers like a little penguin perching on a brown boulder, and Summers came softly near, talking quietly, till he could almost touch the bird. Then away it sped a few yards, and waited. Sheeny grayish-green, like the gum-leaves, become vivid, and the yellowish breast, like the suave gum-tree trunks, and listening, and waiting, and wanting to be talked to, wanting the contact. The other three had disappeared from the seaside. Summers walked slowly on. Then suddenly he saw Jack running across the sand in a bathing suit, and entering the shallow rim of a long, swift upwash. He went in gingerly, then threw himself into a little swell, and rolled in the water for a minute. Then he was rushing back before the next big wave broke. He had gone again by the time Summers came to climb the cliff bank to the house. They had a cup of tea on the wooden veranda. The air had begun to waft icily from the inland, but in the sheltered place facing the sea it was still warm. This was only four o'clock, or today five o'clock tea. Proper tea was at six or half-past, with meat and pies and fruit salad. The women went indoors with the cups. Jack was smoking his pipe. There was something unnatural about his stillness. "'You had a dip, after all,' said Summers. "'Yes, a dip in and out.' Then silence again. Summer's thoughts wandered out to the gently darkening sea, and the bird, and the whole of vast Australia lying behind him, flat and open to the sky. "'You like it down here?' said Jack. "'I do, indeed. Let's go down to the rocks again. I like to be near the waves.' Summer's rose and followed him. The house was already lit up. The sea was bluey, they went down the steps cut in the earth of the bank-top and between the bushes to the sand. The tide was half full, and swishing against a flat ledge of rocks, Jack went to the edge of this ledge, looking in at the surging water, white, hissing, and heavy. Summers followed again. Jack turned his face to him. "'Funny thing it should go on doing this all the time for no purpose,' said Jack, amid all the noise. Yes. Again they watched the heavy waves unfurl and fling the white challenge of foam on the shore. I say, Jack turned his face, I shan't be making a mistake if I tell you a few things in confidence, shall I? I hope not, but judge for yourself. Well, it's like this, shouted Jack. They had to shout at one another in unnaturally lifted voices because of the huge noise of the sea. There's a good many of us chaps as has been in France, you know, and been through it all in the army. We jolly well know you can't keep a country going on the vote-catching system, 
as you said the other day. We know it can't be done. It can't, said Somers with a shout, forever. If you've got to command, you don't have to ask your men first if it's right before you give the command. Of course not, yelled Somers. But Jack was musing for the moment. What? he shouted as he woke up. No, yelled Somers. A further muse and the roar of the waves. Do the men know better than the officers? Or do the officers know better than the men? he barked. Of course, said Somers. These damned politicians, they invent a cry, and they want to see if the public will take it up. And if it won't, they drop it. And if it will, they make a mountain out of it. If it's only an old flower-pot. They do, yelled Somers. They stood close side by side, like two mariners in a storm amid the breathing spume of the foreshore, while darkness slowly sank. Right at the tip of the flat low rocks they stood, like pilots. It's no good, barked Jack, with his hands in his pocket. Not a bit. If you're an officer, you study what is best for the cause and for the men. You study your men, but you don't ask them what to do. If you do, you're a washout. Quite. And if that's where it is in politics, you see the papers howling and blubbering for a statesman. Why, if they'd got the finest statesman the world ever saw, they'd chuck him onto the scrap heap the moment he really wanted his own way, doing what he saw was the best. That's where they've got anybody who's any good, on the scrap heap. Same the world over. It's got to alter somewhere. It has. When you've been through the army, you know that what you depend on is a general, and on discipline and on obedience, and nothing else is the slightest bit of good. But they say the civil world is not an army. It's the will of the people, cried Somers. Will of my grandmother's old tomcat. They've got no will except to stop anybody else from having any. I know. Look at Australia, absolutely fermenting rotten with politicians and the will of the people. Look at the country going rottener every day like an old pear. All the democratic world the same. Of course it's the same. And you may well say Australian soil is waiting to be watered with blood. It's waiting to be watered with our blood. Once England's got too soft to help herself, let alone us, and the Japs come down this way, they'd squash us like a soft pear. I think that's quite likely. What? Likely. It's pretty well a certainty. And would you blame them? If you was thirsty, wouldn't you pick a ripe pear if it hung on nobody's tree? Why, of course you would. And who'd blame you? Blame myself if I didn't, said Somers. And then their colored labor. I tell you this country's far too from Europe to risk it. They'll swallow us. And sure as guns is guns, if we let in colored labor, they'll swallow us. They hate us. All the other colors hate the white, and they're only waiting till we haven't got the pull over them. They're only waiting. And then what about poor little Australia? Heaven knows. There'll be the Labor Party, the Socialists, uniting with the workers of the world. 
They'll be the workers, if ever it comes to it. Those black and yellow people make em work, not half. It isn't one side only that can keep slaves. Why, the fools, the colored races, don't have any feeling for liberty. They only think you're a fool when you give it to them. And if they got a chance, they'd drive you out to work in gangs and fairly laugh at you. All this world's worker business is simply playing their game. Of course, said Summers, what is Indian nationalism but a strong bid for power, for tyranny? The Brahmins want their old absolute caste power, the most absolute tyranny, back again, and the Mohammedans want their military tyranny. That's what they are lusting for, to wield the rod again. Slavery for millions. Japan the same, and China in part the same. The niggers the same. The real sense of liberty only goes with white blood, and the ideal of democratic liberty is an exploded ideal. We've got to have wisdom and authority somewhere, and you can't get it out of any further democracy. There, said Jack, that's what I mean. We'll be wiped out, wiped out, and we know it. Look here, as man to man, you and me here, if you were an Australian, wouldn't you do something if you could do something? I would. Whether you got shot or whether you didn't, we went to France to get ourselves shot for something that didn't touch us very close either. Then why shouldn't we run a bit of risk for what does touch us very close? Why, you know, with things as they are, I don't want Victoria and me to have any children. I had a jolly sight rather not and I'll watch it, too. Same with me, yelled Somers. Jack had come closer to him, and was now holding him by the arm. What's a man's life for, anyhow? Is it just to save up like rotten pears on a shelf, in the hopes that one day it'll rot into a pink canary or something of that? No, said Somers. What we want in Australia, said Jack, isn't a statesman not yet it's a set of chaps with some guts in them who'll obey orders when they find a man who'll give the orders yeah and we've got such men we've got them but we want to see our way clear we don't never feel quite sure enough over here that's where it is we sound as sure as a gas explosion but it's all bang and no bump we all never raise no lids we shall only raise the roof, our politicians will, with shouting, because we're never quite sure. We know it when we meet you English people. You're a lot surer than we are, but you're mostly bigger fools as well. It takes a fool to be sure of himself sometimes. A fact. And there's where it is. Most Englishmen are too big cocked-up fools for us. And there you are. Their sureness may help them along to the end of the road, but they haven't the wit to turn a corner, not a proper corner. And we can see it. They can only go back on themselves. Yes. You're the only man I've met who seems to me sure of himself and what he means. I may be mistaken, but that's how it seems to me. And William James knows it, too. 
but it's my belief william james doesn't want you to come in because it would spoil his little game i don't understand i know you don't now look here this is absolutely between ourselves now isn't it yeah certain yeah jack was silent for a time then he looked round the almost dark shore the stars were shining overhead give me your hand then said jack Summers gave him his hand and jack clasped it drawing the smaller man to him and putting his arm around his shoulders and holding him near to him it was a tense moment for richard lovett he looked at the dark sea and thought of his own everlasting gods and felt the other man's body next to his well now he said in summer's ear in a soothed tone there's quite a number of us in sydney and in the other towns as well we're mostly diggers back from the war we've joined up into a kind of club and we're sworn in and we're sworn to obey the leaders no matter what the command when the time is ready and we've sworn to keep silent till then we don't let out much nothing of any consequence to the general run of the members richard listened with his soul Jack's eager, conspirator voice seemed very close to his ear, and it had a kind of caress, a sort of embrace. Richard was absolutely motionless. "'But who are your leaders?' he asked, thinking, of course, that it was his own high destiny to be a leader. "'Why, the first club got fifty members to start with. Then we chose a leader and talked things over, and then we chose a secretary and a lieutenant.' and every member quietly brought in more chaps and as soon as we felt we could afford it we separated making the next thirty or so in to a second club with a lieutenant for a leader then we chose a new lieutenant and the new club chose a secretary and a lieutenant richard didn't follow all this lieutenant and club business very well he was thinking of himself entering in with these men in a dangerous desperate cause it seemed unreal yet there he was with jack's arm round him and jack would want him to be his mate could he his cobber could he ever be mate to any man you sort of have a lot of leaders what if one of them let you down he asked none of them have yet but we've arranged for that how i'll tell you later but you get a bit of the hang of the thing do you i think so but what do you call yourselves how do you appear to the public we call ourselves the diggers clubs and we go in chiefly for athletics and we do spend most of the time in athletics but those that aren't diggers can join if a pal brings them in and vouches for them richard was now feeling rather out of it returned soldiers and clubs and athletics all unnatural things to him was he going to join in with this how could he he was so different from it all and how do you work i mean together he faltered end of chapter five cooey part two of three